Good afternoon. It is truly a joy to be here. Uh, it is a blessing to have many visitors with us. We're very thankful and encouraged by your presence. I want to invite you, if you have any questions about what you hear taught here or what you see here, feel free to ask. We want our focus always to be upon God's Word. That's where the power is. Uh, and so our, our goal, uh, although we are imperfect, is, is to strive each day more and more to, to conform to His will within the Scriptures. I want to invite you to open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 3 if they're not already open there. This is going to be one of the, the primary focuses of our lesson today. For the past couple months, on the, the first Sunday of the month, we've been doing a series of charts uh, through some of the foundational aspects of the gospel message. And our goal in that is kind of twofold. Uh, number one, to help ground us in some of the most foundational truths of the scripture and remind us of the good news of salvation but also to equip us that we might be able to share that with others. And so we, we are putting this in, in chart form that, that you can, can take and, and use on your own as you seek to study with your friends and your neighbors to teach them about the good news of Jesus Christ. And we started this series at square one. Uh, what is the purpose of life? You can't get a much more foundational question than that. And so we talked about knowing our purpose. And back on the very first page of our Bibles, we see that God created man in his image. We talked about what that means, but maybe one of the most foundational aspects of that idea of being created in the image of God is that God intended for us to reflect his character. Just like you might have an artist who paints many beautiful landscape paintings, and you might be able to tell something about the painter through looking at his artwork. If that same painter were to paint a, image, uh, a painting in his own image, you'd call that a self-portrait. You not only see his talent as a painter or his view of beauty, you see his personal characteristics. Friends, God intended for us to reflect his personal character his love, his holiness, his righteousness. But we saw in our study last month that we have all failed in that purpose. We looked at Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That glorious image, that character that we are intended to reflect, we've all broken it. We're like broken mirrors. We're like ruined paintings that have had black paint splattered all over us. And so we need salvation. You know, if, if we don't understand what sin is, if we don't understand the consequences of sin, then salvation really has no significance. The, the word salvation means being saved from something, right? And so we need to understand our brokenness, our failure. We need to understand what that deserves. And yet, what we want to focus on today is God's solution to that. How do you put all the broken pieces back together? How do you restore that ruined painting? Well, we can't do it, is the answer. Only God can do it. And that is what he has made possible for us through the sacrifice of his son. And so, ultimately, this is God's plan of salvation. It is God's plan of salvation. It is God's solution. But we're going to start off where we left off last time 
which is that we have failed in that. Here in Romans 3, as Rick alluded to earlier in this chapter, really throughout the first three chapters of Romans, Paul convicts everybody of sin. That none is righteous, not even one. Here in Romans 3, starting verse 9, he says, What then? Are we any better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now that sounds pretty harsh. When, when we look at the, the world around us, when we look at ourselves, we, we like to think, well, I, I'm a pretty good person. But here, by God's standards, when he looks down at the world, he sees that we are all failed creations. Right? We were intended to reflect his image, and none of us have done that. We have all strained. None of us meet God's standard of good. And so while we aimed for the, the glory of God, this idea of us falling short of his glory means we miss the mark entirely. And as such, we deserve death. We deserve to be pro- thrown out. You think about a broken mirror. What, what do you do with a broken mirror? Right. It no longer serves its purpose. You're not going to continue to admire yourself in that mirror. It deserves to be thrown out. If you have a, a beautiful painting that's been ruined, you're not going to continue to, to put it up in your foyer for everybody to, to admire, no. It deserves to be thrown out. And that's what we see in Romans 6 and verse 23 in our last study. We deserve death. The wages of sin, what we've earned, what we have accomplished, is death. We're not just talking about physical death there. We covered last time how we're talking about ultimately separation from the source of life. Separation from God himself. But if you look there at Romans 6 and verse 23, just a few pages ahead, notice he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How is that possible? How is it possible when we're so broken and ruined and what we have earned and what we deserve is to be thrown out that God has now given us a gift of eternal life. That just doesn't make sense. Until we understand God's plan of salvation through Jesus upon the cross. And so what I want us to do today is to talk about how Jesus' death accomplishes salvation for us. I think sometimes for for those who have have heard the message of Jesus and the cross time and time again, we we think, well, uh, that's just how it is. Jesus died. It saves us. But I want us to get into a little bit more detail here, specifically looking at Romans 3 and what it says about how the death of one man upon a cross could make salvation possible for all of us. How it can bring forgiveness, not just for my sins or for your sins, but for the sins of the entire world. And to do that, we want to start by setting the stage and seeing how Jesus succeeded where we failed. We're broken mirrors, we're ruined paintings, but Jesus came down, took on flesh, and perfectly reflected the image of God. He was everything that we were intended to be. If you want to look uh, for a moment forward into 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, here Paul talks about how Satan is trying to, to veil the gospel, to blind the eyes of the unbelieving. He says there in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, in whose case the God of this world, talking about Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What, what's the glory of Christ? He is the image of God. Have we heard that phrase before? All the way back on the first page of our Bible. Jesus succeeded where we failed. He perfectly reflected God's character. We see this same idea in Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, it talks about how God spoke long ago to the fathers through the prophets in many portions and in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation or express image of his nature. Here we've fallen short of God's glory, but here Jesus is the radiance of his glory. Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. God has communicated to mankind in, in many different ways ways through the prophets and angels and visions and dreams, but there is no higher expression of God himself than Jesus in the flesh. Jesus being deity, showing us what God is like, reflecting his image to us. We looked uh, a couple outlines earlier in John 1 verse 18, how no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father has explained him or declared him to us. Jesus is the perfect reflection of God. He told Philip in John 14, verse 9, that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so before we can understand how Jesus' sacrifice can bring us salvation, we first need to understand that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the purpose for which man was created. Jesus succeeded where we failed. And so... How is it that Jesus can bring us that salvation? Well, we're going to go to Romans 3, and we're going to focus primarily on verses 24 through 26 uh, to look at a few different words that will help us understand this. Ultimately, what we see here is that Jesus, uh, being the only one who is pure from the contagion of sin, is the only one who could bring us a cure. And here in Romans 3, I want us to look at verse 24 through 26 that Rick read for us earlier. We read in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, you might read that and think, well, that has a lot of big, confusing words. I don't know that I can ever understand that. Well, what I want us to do today is, is to look at some of those words, maybe words that we don't use in everyday conversation, uh, but, but delve into what exactly is being said here about Jesus' gift uh, of salvation. Uh, to, to start with, just briefly for a moment, uh, in verse 24, I want us to consider the word justified, being justified as a gift by his grace. Well, what, what does that mean? Uh, at its core, what justified means is being declared not guilty. 
being declared innocent. Here we're in God's courtroom and we've already seen the case is, is strong against us. We deserve to be convicted. And yet being justified means that we are declared innocent. Well, how is that possible? How can God be a just judge and declare those who are guilty not guilty? Can, it, can God just say, well, I'll, I'll let you off the hook this once? Is that the message of salvation? Well, no, what we see there in verse 26 is that God had to be just and the justifier. God couldn't violate his character. God couldn't be a corrupt judge and give a verdict that we didn't deserve. And so God had to find a way, God planned a way through, from the beginning of time that he would continue to maintain his justice and yet be able to declare us genuinely not guilty. Verse 24 and 25 explains how that takes place. First of all, in verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This is one of those big words we don't use that often. What what does the word redemption mean? You you might think of the the word redeem. We use that in in some context. But at its core, what that means is, is to buy back or to purchase, to exchange for. When it is talked about in a human context, redeeming people, it's really talking about buying people out of slavery. You think about the Old Testament, God is said to have redeemed Israel out of bondage in Egypt, right? Uh, He paid the the price. He, He did what was necessary to release them from that bondage. Well, that's what we see Jesus has done for us. The wages of sin was death. Jesus paid the price for our sins. If you want to look for a moment in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18 and 19. Here, Peter uses this word redeemed. But notice what he says about our redemption. In verse 18, 1 Peter 1, he says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. The blood of Christ. What, what price could possibly be given to buy back human souls imprinted with the image of God? He says here, gold and silver wasn't sufficient. That were more valuable than that. And it's not that, that Satan there is, is standing, keeping us embodied and saying, well, no, I won't accept that price. And no, I won't accept that price. Ultimately, God is the one who set the price when he put his image within us. God knows what value he has placed within us. And the only thing that is valuable enough to pay for human life, we're taught, is human life. <laughs> and ultimately, the life of his own son. Here, none of us were able to pay for somebody else's sins. We all had to pay our own life for our own sins. But Jesus, being the perfect image of God, is the only one who was able to pay our price, to pay for our redemption through his blood as the Lamb of God. The just value that God had invested within us was not purchasable by silver or gold. There was only one price equal to the value of our souls. But what I think this needs to teach us is that sin is not cheap. 
Sometimes we think that, that sin is just, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's, it's, you know, it's just, just a little sin. No, brethren, sin broke the image of God within our souls. Sin put Jesus upon the cross. Sin is serious. And that's, that's why back in Romans chapter 3, we look at ourselves and we, and we see, well, we're not righteous. We're not good. We think, well, no, no, that's not the case. Because we don't see sin the way that God sees sin. And by the same token, we need to recognize that souls are not cheap. When we look at Jesus upon the cross, we see the value that God has placed on you and on me, on our souls. No price could be paid but the blood of his son. So when you think about how we could be saved through the sacrifice of Jesus, you can think about this idea of redemption. He paid the price, the just uh, penalty or the just wages of sin were paid and could only be paid through his blood upon the cross. But if we look back in Romans 3, and I, if I didn't already encourage you to keep your marker there in your Bible, uh, we, we are going to be coming back to Romans 3 throughout our study. So Romans 3, he doesn't just say redemption here. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now, what does that mean? Propitiation. That, that's certainly a word that we don't use in everyday conversation. Well, this word at its core is very similar to an Old Testament concept that we, we might be more familiar with, the idea of atonement. And what it basically means is it is a, a covering or an appeasement for sin, where the, the just penalty, the just consequences of sin are paid. And God taught this to the Israelites under the old law by requiring them to give animal sacrifices. And we learn very clearly from the book of Hebrews, it's not because that blood of bulls and goats actually paid for the price of sins. But God was teaching his people a concept that the penalty, the consequences of sin have to be paid. And when the Israelites would go and slaughter that animal, they were reminded the consequence that they deserved. They deserved to be the one on the altar. That's the concept of propitiation, the concept of atonement. That not only did Jesus pay the price, this isn't just some business transaction that we're talking about here. Jesus took the penalty. He took the consequences for our sin. He ultimately died in our place. And that's why Jesus is called the Lamb of God, who dies for the sins of the world. If you want to look back for a moment in Isaiah chapter 53, here Isaiah foretells about this coming Messiah, this coming Christ. But he shows us here in Isaiah 53 that this Christ was not just going to be a glorious king, which is what the Jews were, were really looking for. He was also going to be a suffering servant. He was also going to be the Lamb of God. So here in Isaiah 53, Isaiah prophesies in verse 4 through 6, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. 
but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. If there's any passage in the scripture that, that shows us what propitiation, what atonement is, this is it. Jesus took on our griefs. He took on our sorrows. He took on the consequences of our iniquities and our uh, transgressions. Everything that we deserved as sheep who had gone astray, the Lamb of God took upon himself. And so this is the, the idea of propitiation. Second uh, Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on, on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took on the sins of the world and their consequences. He suffered our sentence. He was convicted by the verdict that should have been ours. And so not only is this some business transaction in which Jesus pays the price this is a courtroom scene in which Jesus takes the penalty. He takes the consequences. He die, dies in our place. But brethren, if that is the complete concept that we have of, of Jesus bringing us salvation, I think we're missing something. Because if Jesus truly took our place and suffered our penalty... Wouldn't that mean that he had to be separated from God for all eternity? We, we see that is the just consequences of our sin. We talked about spiritual death, the second death. But very clearly in the scriptures, Jesus is not going to spend eternity as a convicted criminal. And so how is it that Jesus can take our place and yet not be separated from God for all eternity? I think this is where a third word becomes very important, and that is resurrection. Brethren, Jesus didn't just pay the price. He didn't just suffer the consequences. He was victorious over the power of sin. He conquered death. He didn't just suffer death. He conquered death. And so that's the reason throughout the book of Acts that we see resurrection being the focus of the apostles preaching time and time and time again. Yes, the message of the cross, but without the resurrection, that is not a completed message. And so, Jesus didn't just pay the wages or suffer, suffer the penalty. He conquered death. I want everybody to turn over to Hebrews chapter 2 with me. Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to see this concept of Jesus conquering death in verse 14 and 15. But I want us to first get some context by going back to verses 6. Uh, through 10. And here in Hebrews chapter 2, we're really going to find kind of a summary of a lot of the things that we've just talked about. Starting in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 6, uh, the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 8, which is a psalm about the wondrous uh, blessing that God has placed on man. Starting in verse 6, he says, But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over the work of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Let's stop there for just a moment. So here, quoting from Psalm 8, and we'll see this does apply looking forward to Jesus. 
but uh, it's, it's initial application. He's talking about how privileged God has made man. That God has made man just a little lower than the angels. He's crowned him with glory and honor. He's put all things in subjection under his feet. If you go back to Genesis 1, how did God create man? He made him the ruler of this world, right? But notice what the Hebrew writer says following that in verse 8. He says, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. The writer is saying, but... But when you look at the world around you, that's not how we see things, right? Today, things aren't like they were in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, are they? As blessed as God created man, today, who is the ruler of this world? Not us. In the scriptures, Satan is called the ruler of this world. Back in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, remember it said, the God of this world is blinding the hearts of the unbelieving. Why is that? Well, did God create Satan to be the ruler of this world? No. Back in Genesis 1, who did he create as the ruler of this world? Us. And by our disobedience, by heeding the, the bidding of Satan, instead of being loyal to the command of God, we have yielded that position over to Satan. We have failed in the purpose for which we were created. And so the Hebrew writer is saying here, you look at this, this privileged position, this blessing that God has given to us, but that's not how we see things. Look in verse 9 and 10 of Hebrews 2. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering de of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him from whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. What do we see? We see Jesus. Jesus succeeding where we had failed. Psalm 8 doesn't describe us now, but it does describe Jesus. That he became lower than the angels by taking on flesh and blood. He was crowned with glory and honor. And all of this in verse 10, to take many sons back to glory. What did Romans 3 verse 23 say? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus came down and dwelt among us, became a man came lower than the angels, that he might take us back to glory. Well, how can he do that? Look in verse 14 and 15. Verse 14, he says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Through death, Jesus didn't just pay the price. He didn't just suffer the penalty. He rendered powerless him who had the power of death. He conquered death. You might think of it this way. Uh, imagine that you have, have two lines of people leading up to, to two electric chairs, and we're all sentenced to certain death. And yet at the front of one of these lines, you have Jesus. And Jesus sits down in the electric chair, and he overloads all the circuits, and he breaks death. Now everybody in his line is free. I think that's kind of the picture that we have here. Jesus has broken the power of death. He has conquered the power of death. You might have heard the phrase before, uh, a, a hero or a warrior going into the belly of the beast. And in many ancient stories, you have this picture of, of somebody fighting against a, a dragon or a monster or a beast and being swallowed up, and you think he's a goner. That's it. 
And yet from inside the belly of the beast, he takes out his sword and he cuts them out from the inside and he conquers the beast. Brethren, that's what Jesus did. He was swallowed by death, but death couldn't hold him. He destroyed the power of death so that those who are willing to submit their life to him might go free. And you see this concept in Acts 2, the very first gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2. We'll we'll say the first gospel sermon uh, after Jesus' death. Certainly the gospel is preached throughout the Old Testament pointing forward as well. Uh, But Acts chapter 2 and verse 22 Here, notice what Peter says. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus and the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Why is it that Jesus isn't going to spend an eternity separated from God? It is impossible. It's impossible for him to be held by its power. Spiritual death is being separated from the source of life, being separated from God. Can Jesus be separated from God? Jesus is God. It doesn't work. Jesus broke the power of death. It was impossible for him to be held by its power. And so, brethren, that is our How does Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross make it possible for us to put all the pieces back together, to restore God's image within us? Because he paid the price. He took our place, and he conquered our death. But that requires something of us, and we're going to talk more about this in our, our next study a month from now. But I want to highlight it now as we conclude And that's that he died for us so that we can live for him. As long as I continue to live for myself, Grady Huggins is a broken mirror. He's a ruined painting. He deserves to be thrown out. And if I'm going to continue to live for myself, I'm going to pay my own consequences. The gospel is that I don't have to live for myself anymore. I can live for the Lord. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. Here Paul says, um, verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Jesus died so that we don't have to live for ourselves any longer. So that we don't have to continue to perpetuate our failure and our brokenness. But so that we can live for him instead. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Brethren, that's what all of us need to be able to say. If we want a hope of eternity in God's presence, if we want to fulfill our purpose and reflect the glory and the image of God, then we can't live for ourselves any longer. We have to live for him. I'm going to look at one last passage together. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 2 through 4. 
Here Paul writes, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's what we've been talking about. We've died. Grady Hawkins isn't home. He's not here anymore. From now on, my life is Christ. As Paul says in Philippians, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But notice what he says later on in verse 9 through 11. Here he's talking about what it is that we're laying off, what it is that we're putting behind us. He says in verse 9, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. How does he describe this renewal? How does he describe this new man that we're putting on? He says it's being renewed according to the image of the one who created him. Brother, we don't have to be failures. We've all failed. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We are ruined paintings, broken mirrors. But we don't have to stay that way. We can put off the old man. By God's grace, we can put on a new man who is Christ. That's being renewed according to God's image. We can reflect his image from day to day by his grace. What about you today? What is your relationship with the Lord? Are you continuing to live for yourself? If so, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're a failure. So am I. But God came to save us from that failure. God has extended his grace, the sacrifice of his son, his own blood shed upon the cross so that we could be saved. Have you responded to that? If you are willing today to confess your belief in Jesus as the Christ, we're told in Romans 6 that we can bury the old man in the waters of baptism. And by God's grace, by his power, by the power of the resurrection, we are able to be raised to walk in newness of life. Have you made that commitment? Have you turned your life over to the Lord? Who are you living for today? If there's anyone here who recognizes that they need to make a change, maybe a change in some public way, commit their life to the Lord for the first time in the waters of baptism, or ask for the prayers of these brethren as you seek to to make a change that you know you need to make, we're here to help one another be pleasing to God. We're here to help one another reflect his image. And if there's anything that we can do to help you today to fulfill the purpose for which God created you, to have a hope of eternity in his presence, that's what we want to do. We're about to to sing a song, and if anyone has uh, a need of a public nature that they'd like to, to express before these brethren, we ask that you'll let us know at this time as we sing together.